0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. On this episode, we have Veterans Breakfast Club Executive Director, Todd DiPastino. I'm excited about getting a bunch of post 9-11 veterans in the room. Like, the breakfasts are so amazing. Yeah. If we can even get close to that kind of vibe, that kind of um, feeling like, camaraderie in the room with these vets, I think we'll really be onto something special.
1: I mean, we've been doing these storytelling events with the older vets for years now. We get a lot of World War II vets, Korean era, Vietnam uh, veterans, and just a smattering of Gulf War and post 9-11 veterans at our events. We realized it was time if we were really going to grow and if we were really going to remain kind of relevant and, and urgent that we would have to get the younger vets together.
0: All right, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Uh, this is our third post 9-11 veterans event. We're really excited about this program. There's a huge turnout. Like right before 9-11, we all joked around about the reserves. Who would ever send us anywhere? I am enlisting. I am going to the drill field next July. I am going to be a drill instructor. Then I um, went to Kyrgyzstan, and that was our, our deployment at Manas Air Force Base.
1: It's like old-timey radio standing up here. And, like, no swear words? Oh, no, no, no. Uh,
0: oh, let it rip. Okay. On this episode of Longest War, the soundtrack of the Global War on Terror. So, you joined us at our last event at the Lit Club in Kirick. Yeah, the event was awesome. It's so important that we do take the time to share our stories with each other, uh, with the community around us so that they can better understand, you know, what it is that that we've done, what we've gone through, what we continue to go through, especially as we start to address this military-civilian divide. All right, so we've had three live post-9-11 events, and how many breakfasts have we done so far this year? Six, maybe? Five. And five breakfast events. Some of the stories that have stuck out. Six. 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 You're right. Okay. Some of the... I don't know some of the stories that have stuck out to me. Um, I like the one about the ants and the flower. I didn't hear that one. I wasn't there oh, for that. That was Pete Longstreth,
1: a Navy vet. And I think we were talking about the food, the food, you know, the MREs compared to the food they had in Vietnam. And then... He joined the Navy because the food was going to be so good. And he said it was, except they were once stuck on some island or near some island in the Pacific. And red, tiny red ants got into their flour supply, their food supply. And the baker sifted the ants out. But it took a lot of work. And so he got tired of sifting. And uh, uh, so then he just baked them right into the bread. And they would just pick the ants out of the bread. And then they got sick of picking the ants out of their bread, so they just ate the ants, and it turns out it was probably a good source of protein. Yeah. <laughs> that is a
0: good story. I like, Actually, my favorite one I've heard, and this is true, literally the morning of the one at Gianna V is the evening event. Me and Steph, my wife, were driving along, and we're talking about, I don't know, we, we had watched a World War II documentary and, uh, the, the night before, and so I was saying, like, you know, they used to treat soldiers like grown-ups, back during World War II, you were a grown man. You could have alcohol. Like, they trusted you to be responsible, to have a few drinks, but when it was time to fight, fight. Nowadays, no, zero tolerance for anything. Uh, it's not like Vietnam. It's not like World War II. And then we had this event at, at Gianna Villas, and that was a 94, 95-year-old artillery guy from World War II tells a story about how they found, what was it, um... Casks of wine. Casks of wine. They looked into that catacomb. There was wine. So they got two of those barrels and put it in a truck. About an hour or so, they they brought these trucks to the artillery gun. The 105 howitzers. All at once, the telephones ring. Everybody's having a hell of a good time of drinking this wine. You know. <laughs> So, finally, the fire mission comes down and the officer gave the elevation and all this fire. Nothing, no noise or nothing. Everybody's over there drunk as hell. <laughs> and these guys were all passed out drunk around the gun and no one, no one shot. They couldn't fire the gun. And so I realized it wasn't that they were more responsible, it was that they ruined it for all of us. Their irresponsibility now makes the army super dubious of whether or not you can do your job after consuming alcohol. It's like
1: when you're in high school and the seniors above you go on the senior class trip and they get in trouble, and so they cancel it for your (laughs) your class, you know? That's That's exactly exactly what what it is. Yeah, that was Dan Gamiliano. What a wonderful story that was. I really like mixing the generations in the evening events. I mean, the evening events have a different vibe from the morning events. There's It's kind of lo- – it's looser. It's uh, just slightly more adult. And it is nice having – it's slightly more intimate. They tend to be smaller than the morning events. And uh, it's wonderful having more of a balance – With the young, and then the Vietnam era, and then even a couple Korean and World War II vets mixed in.
0: Yeah, it's really nice because I love having, particularly the World War II guys around because those dudes, like, we just look up to them so much. But I think the thing that I've found surprisingly difficult about it is, particularly with the Vietnam vets, like, we are not on the same page with our service as they were, you know. And we've mentioned this before. We talk about things like referring to your contract, like. Oh, you know, did you re-enlist? Did you get any options in your contract for airborne school or ranger school or whatever? And they're like, no, 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 that was, yeah. <laughs> it was a one-year contract. Like, right. There was no, they didn't even entertain the idea of possibly re-enlisting. And that came through at John Avias, where
1: one of the young vets asked kind of, what did you, what kind of duties did you request in order to get a promotion? And it was like crickets chirping. And finally, Richard Gotch, a, a Vietnam veteran who was an officer, a, a lieutenant, I think, said that getting a promotion was not the problem. The, the problem was getting home. We wanted to get out and get home.
0: And yeah, I think a, he said uh, different uh, mindset all you got to do was stay alive to yeah. get promoted, right?
1: Stay alive, you could get promoted. That wasn't the issue. But then there, there are wonderful moments when you do get the sense that there's something universal about military service. And it was at that same event at Gianna Villas in February that a Vietnam vet, Larry Woods, asked a wonderful question about what prepared you for combat? And he said, you know, my generation, we watched John Wayne, the Sands of Iwo Jima. That, we thought, prepared us for combat. And it turns out Combat was very different from what we had assumed it would be like. What prepared your generation for combat? And that I think that was a wonderful question and it elicited some uh,
0: good answers. There's definitely a common thread that links all the generations because there's certain things that all service members to one degree or another can relate to. It's like, you know it's raining, it's muddy, <laughs> and you're outside trying to clean your weapon, right? <laughs> just this thing of like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever thought, why are we doing this outside? Right, and everyone right. shares that experience. Yeah. So there are certain aspects that, yeah, definitely run across generations. And it's only a few things that are they're really the significant disconnects with. But a lot of those things are just like with, with the language we use regarding... How we serve it just totally, we confuse one another with it. Yeah. But it is is—it is interesting to see how much in common there is. And there's a higher proportion of you
1: guys of your generation who were both in the army or in the military and of it. You know, you had volunteered for it. Many of you had probably considered it as a career. You're going to do 20 years. Did you ever consider that? No. No. You. So you knew from the beginning,
0: what, six years when I'm out? So I ended up doing eight. So I did my first enlistment. I was like... I don't know, maybe two and a half years into that. And I was in Afghanistan um, and I'm 20 years old at the time. And they're like, hey, you want $18,000 tax-free because you're in Afghanistan to re-enlist for six more years? I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. $18,000, that's a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Like that money didn't last me three months, right? Like right. I was gone. Like I regretted that decision almost <laughs> immediately. But yeah, so it was just like, all right, I'll do this one more tour. Right. Make a lot of money
1: and then get out. In the draft era, you know, when when the our veterans, our older veterans served, it was they were in the Army but not of it. They were doing their time. They were either draftees who were putting in their two years or they often were uh, volunteers but were motivated by the draft. They, they didn't want to serve in the Army, so they joined the Navy. And either way, you know, they kind of have one foot in the civilian world. And so they kind of had a jaundiced civilian often crit- you know, critical perspective on their military experience. Whereas more, I think of your generation, it was really an identity. It was something that you put on, you wore like a uniform that uh, separated you from the civilian world and you were comfortable in that world. And I wonder if that makes coming home more difficult for you guys because you were in it and of it. You entered a subculture that was separate and distinct from the civilian world with different rules and attitudes and jargon language. And now you have to separate from it after six years or eight years, 10 years, and mix up with civilians again. And I think the military-civilian gap is so profound today, where there wasn't really one or wasn't as
0: severe 50 years ago, that I think it's harder for you guys to come home. Sure. And I also think that, and you know, this is just from my experience, I don't want to speak for all the young vets, but I think some of us may be slightly guilty of, you know, wearing rose colored glasses when we think about our service. You know, the first unit I was in, I was in that unit for like five years. By the fifth year, I was like, man, this is the worst unit in the entire United States Army. <laughs> I cannot wait to get out of here. So I leave, I go to Fort Campbell to 101st Airborne. And when I get there, I very quickly realized that I just came from the best unit in the US Army, right? Like coming from Fort Ron, from 10th Mountain, from 132. Like, I was like, man. What an idiot I was to leave that place, and then I get out, and you know I, I had to fight the surge to be like, man, you know, with the army—that's like, the way you're supposed to do things, right? But in the moment when I'm in, I just would just look around, and be like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Why are we doing things this way? But then you get out, and it's—I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that yeah, we we volunteered for that, right? Like, right, you own it. We chose to you be a part it. of this thing. Yep. Um, and we've had this discussion. There were things about Afghanistan that, like, drove me mental. I cannot even imagine what it would have been like to be there, just pulled off the street and said, hey, you're going. I would have resented every single moment of being there, I feel like. And I'm surprised that a lot of the older Vietnam vets don't have that resentment towards the the Army. Yeah, or the Navy or the Air Force. Like, And to me, the fact that we have— hundreds and hundreds of Vietnam vets in Pittsburgh, they're like, yeah, it sucked, but what are you going to do, right? Like, that's that's mine. I, Because I, I can't imagine a million years ever, like, not being angry about Getting that, that letter in the mail that says you are to report for an
1: induct, induction physical and you're going to be serving in the Army, it is almost hard to imagine. It really is. I mean, yanking you out of your civilian life. And you're right. We don't hear much bitterness about that when I've gone out on the nursing home circuit or the retirement community circuit, and I've talked to the older vets, you know, they don't come to our events. I go to them. I will hear that. And so I think, I think uh, in, in many cases we, we have a self-selected group who show up at our events and they're people who generally have a positive relationship to their military service. Those whose lives were really damaged by that service, I think tend not to have a good relationship and they don't come to our events. I have heard, you know, a, 32, a guy who says, I was 32 years old, I had a baby, I was married, and I got a draft notice, and he was bitter about it. But uh,
0: they tend not to come to our breakfast or the evening events. You've heard the same from not just Vietnam, but World War II veterans yes. that were salty about being yes. drafted, right? Yeah. And is oh, that, yeah. Is that pretty much the standard? It was because they were in a period of their life that... Yeah. The younger, younger ones who were drafted
1: didn't have as much a problem with it. The older ones did. If you were married, and especially if you had a baby and you were drafted, that was bad. And they were, and they were drafted in large numbers. There was huge draft resistance and draft evasion in World War One, just off the charts, way worse than Vietnam. So in every era, there's kind of draft evasion. You know, there, you kind of have to strategize for how you're going to deal with this letter that comes in the mail. Why was that? Was it just because World War I was
0: just such a meat grinder?
1: Yeah, there was a sense that um, we were, we had the luxury of having the Atlantic Ocean between us and that horrible war. We had a 200-year tradition or 150-year tradition of... Everybody from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson telling us not to get involved in European wars. And we had been out of the war for, for three years almost. And, and, and now it just suddenly seemed that here we are found in it. And there was a great effort to promote the idea of volunteering for the military. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said we needed a million men in the army. And so that's why James Montgomery Flag made that great poster I want you to serve, you know, of Uncle Sam pointing at you. That was all part of this promotion to get volunteers. A million volunteers, 73,000 signed up. So they had a draft, the first modern draft. Korea was draft era too, right? Korea was draft era. Oh, boy, the bitterness over the draft for the Korean War. Very strong. Was that just because, like, guys, we just got over one of oh, these? Just, Just, you know, five years out from the worst war in human history, and now we're doing it again. Maybe this one, even worse, you know, you don't know how much this war is going to expand into, whether it's going to expand into World War III. Yeah, there was a lot of fear about that. And really, I think people that we don't get are people, and there are a lot of them, who were who served in World War II and were recalled for the Korean
0: War. Talk about bitterness. Wait, so you could be drafted for World War II and then, in essence, redrafted for Korea? You were often put in the reserves
1: for a certain number of years after the war, and you would sit, you would serve for five, five or six years in inactive reserve, and those inactive reserves were called up for Korea. Wow. And we had a veteran who attended one of our events, and, you know, he was one of, like so many of our vets, he said, I don't really have a story, I got drafted in, in 1950, and I, I worked, he said, I worked as a clerk in Fort Dix, you know, two years, put in my time, and never left Fort Dix. And uh, he talked at a breakfast and he said, um, he broke down and cried. And he said, actually, my job at Fort Dix was to uh, do the paperwork for the World War II veterans who were being recalled for, uh, to be sent to Korea. And he, he broke down and cried and said, it was horrible. These men had been through hell one time and they had a sense that they weren't going to live the second time. It, it just was such an instructive that, yeah, truly every veteran does have a story
0: even if you're working a typewriter at Fort Dix. And I think the travesty about Korea is that like so many people don't even know that it was like a conflict. You know what I mean? Like if you ask people, you know, and I'm guilty of it myself sometimes when I'll name off, I'll be like, you know, Vietnam, World War II, post 9-11, and I'll skip Korea. And it's like so unintentional because Korea was horrific. Yeah, absolutely, Bob Harbulo that comes to the breakfast, the Chosen Reservoir, 50,000 Chinese soldiers surrounding them, 40 below, like literally dead bodies so cold that they were, you know, stiff as rocks, no food, no ammo. How they survived and broke through that line and escaped, like it's still a miracle. Yeah. But just the worst combat you could possibly imagine on any front during any war. Yeah. Korea at least matches that, right? Yeah. There's not Korean War veteran parades, you know? These guys, they don't really get the recognition that they deserve. Right. Particularly like the guys, the Marines, Mm -hmm. you know, like was it 12,000 US Marines, 50,000 Chinese soldiers, just awful, awful combat. And they just kind of get glossed over because even you talk about Vietnam vets, when they come back from Vietnam and they bitch about the, like the VFW, they don't even say anything about the Korea vets. They're always like, oh, it's those goddamn World War II asshole vetters, right? Like they, they don't even mention the Korean War vets. And it was a weird a weird era too, of the age group of people going into Vietnam, like their fathers were in World War II, right? Just it's a little, they were a little too old to have been in Korea. Mm-hmm. So it just, it's this weird intergenerational thing where it just kind of gets lost to history and it's a shame. Yeah, it never seized the
1: larger culture's imagination the way Vietnam did in a negative way. I mean, Vietnam was a national trauma. Korea was not really a national trauma. It was strangely inconclusive. We didn't win it, but we didn't lose it. You know, we ended at the starting point and never had a treaty. It was just a ceasefire. So it was kind of good enough to walk away from, but not not bad enough to, you know, really view it as a traumatic event for the nation.
0: Which is weird, particularly like this moment in history as big of an issue as Korea is, particularly North Korea, like that we don't have this conversation more. Most people can't tell you how Korea was split into two. They have no idea. We're They have no idea we had part of
1: it. Yeah, we're still living with that war. We really are in a profound way. Kevin mentioned Les Snyder, one of our World War II veterans, and he gave us some rare artifacts that were such a delight to listen to. They were records, 45 uh, records, Little ones, vinyl record. What were they made of? Some kind of plastic. That he made. He recorded first time. I think it was at Fort Bragg, just after basic training, or just after his advanced artillery training for World War II, before he shipped overseas. And he's he made a recording, or you know, hey mom and dad, I'm ready to go. We're having you know great fun here. The guys are great. We're shipping overseas. You know, there's like a very positive, boyish kind of tone to it. Hi hey
0: mom and dad. How are you doing?
1: I'm making a USO
0: club in North Carolina. I just talked to you on the phone, and it sure was great to hear your voices again. I am pretty busy here, and they keep us going every minute. We tried the 105 horses last week in a series of drills. It really wasn't too bad, though, except for the mud. It took us entirely too. My trip to Gaylock,
1: Virginia last week was really wonderful.
0: Born, and then he did it again. Recorded
1: reported season. one again on for his parents before he was shipped over the Pacific. Five years later, or six years later, to Korea, and man, is the tone different. He is older. He is sober. Oh, that mother and dad. I'm just passing through the PX up here, and I saw this recording machine to record your voice and send a letter home. So it just reminded me of the
0: times that I made records before and sent them to you. Well, now I have a command of my own, and many men are under me. Even many of them as young and as innocent as this. Is High old tough old as I was myself. Makes it easier for me to see follow up a little bit. Helping get along. You know, it's a big responsibility for me, and I do the best I can to, to uh,
1: take good care of them. Well, I fight all the time. I have Lance up in a sign off. Love a lot. By this time, he's an officer. My goal is to you know keep the young men alive and bring them all home, and teach them as best I can, and uh, get this thing done and over with totally different tone. And it does make me think that it's like your generation experienced that transformation, you know, because you all served long enough to learn the lessons of war and the prices that are paid. And I imagine that all of it, you know, all of you guys who served six years or four years or eight years
0: kind of sobered up by the end of your terms. Sure. Because I think it's, I don't know if this is technically accurate, but I feel like I've my understanding is most people that deployed once deployed twice. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't deploy. But the people that did, you know, barring death, injury, you know, just getting lucky and only deploying like in the last year of their contract, almost everybody that deployed once went back for at least a second time, if not more. And again, there's certainly a change in the attitude. The first time you get on a plane, it's piss and vinegar. Second time you get on a plane, it's sobering. Right. Like, you know exactly what you're getting into. What could happen, and you have a very clear idea of what you hope happens, and that is that you return. Right. It's, um, yeah, it's something else. And I wonder if that's, like, one of the advantages of, or, or one of the big reasons why they didn't ship guys home during World War II for periods of time is because, like, who's going to want to go back to that, you know?
1: There was a great review after World War II about the morale of the American Army soldier, and that the morale was deemed to be very low, and believe it or not, in World War II, after the war. There were congressional commissions. I think there was a Doolittle committee. Jimmy Doolittle was the chair of it. Uh, all kinds of internal studies. I mean, whole libraries were filled with studies of, you know, how can we improve the morale of our fighting men? And so they instituted this new system in Korea, refined it further in Vietnam. And the idea was, let's limit the exposure of our soldiers and you know sailors to in to harm's way by having just a discrete term overseas. They won't be they won't be in the war. They won't be in Korea for the duration of the war. They'll be there for nine months, 10 months, 12 months, it depended on how close you were to the front lines and how much danger you saw. And Korea it was kind of a complicated formula. You got certain, you know, credits for being close to the front lines, fewer credits if you were farther back. So So it was
0: still kind of like the old war to point system. It was kind of,
1: yeah. There was Evolved slightly. Yeah, it was evolved slightly so that you would only be, you know, 15 months maybe at most would you be in Korea. In Vietnam, it was simplified to simply one year. It was 12 months, 365 days, or the Marines, you know, 395 days. And that was considered to improve morale so that you always knew all I got to do is survive this 365 days and I could go home.
0: Sure. Because, like, they there were guys, uh, World War II veterans, landed at Normandy and were there until 1945. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, July, August 45 is when they finally got to come home. I mean, and they had no idea. They just knew, like, I'm here either till I get shot enough times, I get enough Purple Hearts to get points, or this thing's over. And... There's kind of like those uh, those barracks rumors go around. That's where there were always constantly rumors, like, this will be over by Christmas, right? Yeah. And I, I'm convinced that that wasn't coming from the politicians. That was coming from, like, the infantry guys on the ground just trying to psych themselves up, saying, like, we'll have Hitler beaten a year. Easy. Right, right. So after Reich Falls, VE Day, they're at Berchtesgaden just hanging out. It's like, all right, boys, pack your bags. We're going to Japan. Yeah. Uh, so they've been there for four years yeah. or three years already, and now it's like another indefinite amount of time, you're gonna go to another theater and not even go home in between. Yeah. like It's insane. Thankfully, the military is the one year, and they're still like, that's kind of bullshit too, because we were supposed to do a year, Mm -hmm. and like a week before we went home, they come up like, hey, we need you three more months. But they're getting better about it at least. All right, Todd, thanks so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Be sure to like us on Facebook and Twitter. What a
1: rookie! What a rookie! It's been a long day. So, when I tell people that a Hey, shut up, I'm talking. That a podcast is like a radio show, but on the internet? Do you think they're getting it at all?
0: If you have an idea of what a podcast is, you're like, oh yeah, radio show on the internet, exactly what it is. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, yeah, anything electronic is the internet. It's like, listen to old-timey radio. No, this is
1: newfangled radio.